This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. All right, guys, uh, episode 34 of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast. Uh, this episode, we have got Ronnie Duga with us out of Venton, Louisiana. Ronnie, thanks for joining Locking Out Tonight, man. Oh, no problem. I enjoy being on the show. Yeah, so Ronnie's been a contributor for Louisiana Bowhunter for the past three years. Um, and uh, just to kind of touch base on what a contributor does, like we talked about on uh, kind of the season kick, season two kickoff, we, we're, we're vehemently against the word pro staff. Um, and... Uh, our contributors are just average people, just like you and me, that represent the ethical standards of uh, Louisiana bow hunters and bow hunting and, and outdoorsmen um, all together. And then also um, provide content, you know, help uh, help provide content for the website and help provide content for social media. So it's um, the reason why we have so many contributors is because this is a brand about everybody. Uh, and the more contributors we have, the more people that are on board to help represent the entire state, the better. So um, Ronnie's been doing that for the past few years, been doing a great job, and we really appreciate him being a part of it. This episode is brought to you by Gator Coolers out of Shriver, Louisiana. If you're looking for an excellent cooler to add to your lineup, they've got 70 quarts with wheels. They've got customizable options for lid pads as well as custom camp cups as well, 20-ounce and 30-ounce. So definitely check out Gator Coolers at GatorCoolers.com and pick you up one today. We are today going to be talking about an issue that uh, I guess it's subsided now, but it was a big deal for a long time, actually almost the probably the majority of the year, which is flooding. 
Um, and uh, Ronnie, he lives in Venton, um, which has its own flooding issues on that side of the state, the southwest side of the state, but he also hunts a lot of um, the river parishes, hunts on the east side and the northeast side of the state. So um, we're going to be talking about flooding. Locke hunts a lot of uh, uh, property that is affected by the Mississippi River waters. So um, just going to be going over a little bit about the effects of that and uh, the recovery of properties this time of year once the water recedes and um, what to expect with your deer herd in, in the next season. So, um, Ronnie, why don't you start us off, man? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you how long you've been bow hunting. Well, I've been bow hunting probably, I think I bought my first bow in 2004. And I've been doing it ever since then, um, mostly just public land. I've, I live actually maybe a quarter of a mile from a WMA. So I've been going there ever since I can drive my little truck over there and launching a boat and hunting. And once I started getting a little older, I started kind of venturing out, hitting, you know, all the Mississippi flood, floodplain areas. And then Vincent started going up toward Missouri. So I work shift work and kind of gives me a lot of time where I can go during the week and hunt and travel. So every month I have a week off. So that week I'm usually not home, which is it's not good with the family. <laughs> yeah. I'm able to get out there and either go to Missouri or up, you know, anywhere in North Louisiana. And I try to hit most of the little WMAs and refuges on that, on that end of the state. But, but yeah, man, I enjoy it. Now, now do you, do you only hunt public land or do you have any, uh, a lease that you hunt as well? I've never been on a lease in my life. It's all just public land. Now in Missouri, it's, um, we go up there, it's private land and where our private land or go up there, it's, it's bordered public and private. So it kind of bounces back and forth between both of them. Gotcha. It's kind of depending on where the deer are. Well, um, Let's let's kick it off. Tell us about uh, your recent success. Um, when you killed the doe, what was that, Saturday? Yeah, Saturday morning. Tell us yeah. about that. Uh, well, I just kind of been trying to scout around on the WMA by the house, which has kind of been pretty rough due to the flooding issues we had. But I don't know, it's kind of all bow season. I haven't been out there because it's been so hot. And finally got out there and found some decent sign that I thought. And um, I actually went out there the day before with my bow scouting around. And I walked up to a doe probably 30 yards, and she kind of jumped up out of her bed and turned around and looked at me, and she was real alert. And so I drew back on her and shot, and she, man, she ducked my arrow big time. But <laughs> she was kind of like just staring right at, right at my eyes the whole time. So I walked a little bit more, and I, I jumped up another doe and, and a yearling. And falling. So I kind of backed out of there. So well, I'm going to come back here in the morning. So sure enough, I got there in the morning, and Saw a little basket rack, six point come by and just watched him go by. And here come another little basket rack buck. And, and it wasn't like 30 minutes later, here come a doe just easing through there, eating uh, water oak acres and come in about 40 yards and took a shot and took her down. It's pretty nice. Pretty good little hunt. Nice, man. Very, very eventful. It's uncommon um, this time of year like that, but it worked out for me. Now, how, how are you accessing that, that piece of property? Oh, uh, boat. It's all, it's all boat only. So boat, and then you gotta get in the P row and go a little ways, but because the water was so low that wind was blowing all the water out, so I couldn't get all the way where I wanted to get with the boat. So I take the P row out and kind of push over some little spots and get back to where I was. Nice. Well, uh, you know, we've talked about hunting, going in by boat and and hunting in from water access a lot. So when you do that, I mean, we're not gonna name exactly where you were, but when you do that, do you feel like it? Uh, separates yourself from the rest of the hunters like you have areas to yourself or less pressure right even just with a boat you separate yourself from most of the people 
because a lot of people don't have the boats to be able to access that actual piece of land. And then when you go and carry a Piro with you, then you can actually get a lot further. Because most people, you don't see them with a Piro out there. So if you have a Piro and you can get a lot further in there than most people, then yeah, you're going to have the advantage going to get away from people. I mean, that's really the only way to get away from people out there. Yeah. So so there's this thing um, called apophenia, uh, which is um, uh, uh, someone's perceived ability to see patterns in unrelated things. Okay. Apophenia is um, uh, the way to explain... Um, when your parents buy a red car, how you see that red car all over town. Um, or if, uh, you know, if you get a new set of truck tires, you see other trucks that have the same nitto grapplers, right? So it's, it's not that it's any more common. It's just now you're paying attention to it. Um, and, uh, but if you think about apophenia and like the, the, the patterns you see in the hunting world these days, how often on a, on a weekend do you see a boat with a Piro or, I mean, sorry, do you see a truck with a Piro in the back versus a truck with a four wheeler in the back or a truck pulling a golf cart? Right. And, you know, regardless of if they're going to private land or public land, if you're seeing 25 to one four wheelers to Piro's or four wheelers to, I don't know, mud boats or, or surface drives or something like that, or a small outboards, I mean, that's kind of confirming the fact that, you know, I'd want to get away from that four-wheeler trail of wherever I'm going. Um, right. I want to find that bayou. I want to find that loggy bayou that, you know, you might be, might not be able to 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 get past it in a in an outboard or even in a surface drive. Um, so, uh, you know, you start looking at public lands or even private lands um, where you have skinny backwater that you otherwise couldn't access that there's no four wheeler access. That's where I'm focusing on, on public land. Is that, is that kind of your game plan as well? Oh, absolutely. Everywhere I go, when I go to hunt on the east side of the state, I'll always have my beer with me. I, I never go there without one. Cause that's, that's where I'm looking. I'm, I can find a bayou or a little Creek or something that gets kind of way back there away from everybody and places where people can't get. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. 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 Well, um, so tell us about the flooding that that's happened over on your side of the state, what your experience has been with that, um, personally and, and also for deer season as well, as well. Well, the flooding it's, it's, you know, usually it's every couple of years is what the kind of norm has been for us, but since 2016, it's been pretty rough. It's been every year and two major floods. I actually had my house got flooded twice in the last few years. So but where I hunt, it's just a, it's a big island all surrounded by water. And obviously when it floods, it pushes all the deer off of it. Well, we've had two major ones and every single, you know, consecutive year for the last, what, three years mm-hmm. we've had floods. So it's pushed the deer off and every year, and they all come back. But every year you can notice the difference, you know, worse, you know, the deer population and then it's kind of just declining and declining, declining, declining every year. Well, you know, like this year, it's finally, it flooded pretty much all winter, all spring, and then most all summer. It just dropped out in July. So the deer finally started coming back across. But when you start walking around out there, you know, you can notice like most all your brows has all died, mm-hmm. you know, from the flood because it stayed flooded for, I don't know, eight months or so. So it killed all the under foliage and there's probably no brows left for the deer. So and then you got to look at the fact that all the does they had their blinds on the dry side of the land on the other side of the river so 
trying to get some hit the falls back across. They follow it, you know, as soon as the water resides, they all follow the water, you know, back to then cross the river and get back to the drier land. That's where their homeland is. So, you know, with it being there, they've had floods on the dry land on the opposite side of the river. It's them trying to cross with the ponds and some of them, you know, they don't make it. And I would imagine that some does probably don't cross back with mm-hmm. a small pond. I'm not sure exactly on that, but I do. I have noticed that, you know, the population is just dropping every year, every year due to the floods being so, so bad. I've always heard that, and, and I mean, I've, I've hunted flood prone areas most of my life and the extent of the flood there's a uh, distinguishable fawn loss well pregnancy loss rate uh, depending on the flood so you know basically what I've always been told is the deer the deer do come back and it, it, it really hinges heavily on the timing of the flood if the does drop their fawns on high ground, they're less likely to return, uh, at least in a timely manner. And they're at least and also, the fawn gets old enough, probably. Yeah, and then all well, it's not just that; it's also the the does have to. If you'll notice, um, and I'm sure you have, and people listening, I'm sure you've noticed, right about the time of the year. For me here, it's it's in um, late June, early July. But right about the time the does drop their fawns, if you'll notice, for about a week or two, you start seeing a lot of deer in the summertime. And that um, can be attributed heavily to the fact that as soon as they give birth, they have to replenish. They have to eat a lot. And even if the water has fallen out, um, if there's not enough food, the does have to stay where they can eat. They, uh, I, I'm no biologist, but that's what I've always been told. And I know that myself, I notice every year just simply driving to and from work. Cause I, I live out in the country and I drive in the country to work and back every day for about two or three weeks after, you know, when, when, when the fawns start dropping, I go from seeing no deer from late spring into early summer to all of a sudden seeing does every morning and every afternoon out feeding on the side of the road. So that has a lot to do with it in terms of the timing of the flood because the does have to have a lot of food. And then, of course, they're protecting their, their young, like you talked about. Um, they, they simply can't navigate that whole migration, if you will, with, with little ones. But then there's also the stress factor. If the flood is happening um, at the wrong time, like if you have a late, a late spring flood where they haven't had time to kind of relocate and settle, um, if mm-hmm. they get pushed too late in their pregnancy, they'll abort their pregnancies. I've, I've right. been told that as well. And so certain areas that get the, get flooding at the wrong time of the year actually lose a ton of fawns. Not not a fawn. They lose a ton of pregnancies because the does get so stressed at the wrong time of the pregnancy. So I don't know. Just interesting things right. I've always been yeah, told. I've, I've heard the same thing that you know they'll have the miscarriages just due to stress being displaced from you know where they're from. But yeah, yeah you really want that. that water to you want that water to push them at the right time. If it's going to push them, it needs to push them early in the pregnancy. If it pushes them late in the pregnancy, it puts them at a high risk for for aborting. So, uh, mm-hmm. so if I remember last season correctly, I'm pretty sure the water started coming up like the first half of January. 
Um, it actually started coming up in November yeah. last year. Really? It came right. to a, it came to a, I guess what you would say, I'm, now this is the Mississippi River I'm talking about. The Mississippi River came in late Oct- late October, early November. It got to a flood stage, and it wasn't bad, but it was flooded. Um, you know, enough to to be getting in the woods in a lot of places. And then by late November, early December, it was at, uh, I would, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm using layman terminology here, but an above average flood stage. And then by January, it was full fledged, just mm-hmm. catastrophic in terms of the Mississippi River plain. Yeah. And it stayed yeah. that way until August. Yeah. Which yeah. is actually better. That's actually better in terms of deer numbers. That's better because those does were probably bred on high ground. You know, they were established. They they probably had their fawns. They'll eventually make their way back. Whereas opposed to um, if you get a severe flood like mid to late spring, it can it can mess them up. So, so Ronnie, these deer that you're seeing coming back, are you, when you're hunting them, are you finding best success like hunting feed trees that are dropping now? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's pretty much all they're hitting right now. Is, is all we have right now is water oak acorns dropping, water and oaks. Um, I haven't found any white oak trees that are dropping yet this year, but that's mainly all they're hitting because the all the little browse they normally eat is all dead. It's it's starting to come back. You can see it's starting to make a comeback, but I'm afraid that the first frost is probably going to cut a lot of it back before it can get established. Yeah, but I'm not sure what they're going to do. I mean, they're going to they're going to find stuff to eat when all the acorns are gone, but it's going to be tough for them. So, lock your property along the river. Did you get to hunt it at all last year? Um, well, a friend of mine that hunts with me hunted a little bit. I actually didn't hunt it because I had other property to hunt, and it was we were shrunk down to such little huntable ground that I just kind of let them have it because that was the only place they had to hunt. Um, but, you know, 210 acres, we shrunk down. By Thanksgiving, we were shrunk down to maybe – 30 or 40 acres Mm. and then by christmas and for the rest of the season which is the rut in that area we basically had a strip of land less than 100 yards wide that ran along the side of a paved road and probably a quarter of a mile you know uh and that was all the drive and that's the high ground you know the road's obviously up on the high ground it drops down in the bottom and that that's all the dry ground we had and we had deer there but uh no i didn't hunt that i i i duck hunted a few times no deer hunting gotcha well i i stayed in touch with some people up um in northeast louisiana last year that um have land around the tinsaw area in, in tinsaw parish and um you know a lot of people last year went uh to the go in by boat tactic by necessity not by choice last year um and uh you know it's 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 a hard thing you know you can think of it two ways you can say oh it's got to be easier because the deer are more concentrated but when when you've got an, an island in the woods like say palmetto hardwoods and that island is i don't know 100 yards long and 50 yards wide there's no sneaking up on that real easily, you know? Um, and so in some ways it makes it easier in some ways it makes it harder because you have a a higher chance of kind of blowing that area out if you approach it the wrong way or, or too loudly. 
Um, but then again, if, uh, if you've got, if you've got the, uh, the ability to get in there quietly, climb up in a tree real quickly and easily and quietly, then, uh, you know, there's a good chance something might come back to it or, or something will seek reprieve on that Island and you can take a shot at it then, you know? Um, but for both of y'all, what, what advice do y'all offer to people that are dealing with flood, flood properties, flooded properties? What advice do y'all have in y'all's experience? What would you offer? Uh, you want to go um, first, Lord? Yeah, I, I will. Um, well, I mean, a lot of it really just comes down to common sense. I mean, you can kind of look at the situation for what it is and, and not overthink it. I mean, it kind of is what it is. The deer, they will swim away from you and they will migrate in and out of the water. Um, but as with most things, they're, you know, they're going to take the path of least resistance. So, um, one of the best tactics that I've found, and I guess this is this is really only applicable to the person that's listening who has access to this kind of uh, situation. But if you can find a, a long ridge, a dry, a high ridge, but a long one that goes, you know, even off of your property, the deer, you know, as opposed to a locked area like you were talking about, Kyler, I've actually found that a locked area like that is not really i'm not saying it's not worth hunting but a lot of times if unless it's the only ground around um it's probably it's not preferred over the dry ground that runs long it can be really skinny but if it's really long they'll run up and down it Mm -hmm. and even if it goes into high ground and you think okay well why would they be down here on this end of this ridge where it's completely surrounded by water when they can go a quarter of a mile that way and it leads, you know, and it's going up and into high ground, they'll still run that water. The deer will, will walk the edge of the water. So water's edge on high ridges that lead to somewhere they can go, so to speak, where they're not isolated. Yeah. To me seems to be, the most productive and uh, you know and to reiterate i guess i'm kind of saying the same thing don't underestimate the deer's desire and will to come back and be where it's flooded if they're there and if you have a piece of property that's got a lot of deer on it and it's good and it floods the deer are going to come back and check that water just about every day they're going to be as close as they can get and they're going to hang as as much as their instincts will let them and they're going to walk that water almost every single day trying to get back in there waiting on the water that's right so hunting water's edge that has access to more land if that makes sense you know not just a water's edge on a on an island so to speak but yeah a water's edge that that they can come and go or move up and down and get to more sustainable habitat that'll be their travel route so, um, you know, that's, that's what I've, you know, that's kind of how I've always focused my scouting and hunting when the, when the water's up is I try to find a, one of those water's edge somewhere along one of those ridges. And it's obvious, obviously it, it's really easy to see and isolate that deer sign in those scenarios and find how they're moving, figure out which way they're coming, hunt accordingly. Ronnie, what you got? Yeah, man, pretty close to kind of what he said. Because the deer, they, I mean, 
like like I said, they stay on the water's edge. They they as the water drops, they're dropping. Like they're following it the whole way in. And I mean, they're gonna venture out because they gotta eat. So they're gonna venture out and try to find things to eat. So they're gonna, but I don't think they're gonna get too too far. So that's mainly what I do. I try to stay, you know, anywhere the water is, I follow it because that's enough for I know the deer are gonna do. They're gonna follow the edge of the water as it drops. The deer drop. They go with the water itself. I mean, you can actually when the water's dropping, you can actually see the deer's tracks in the mud where the water was the day before because they're just staying right there on the edge of it. But that's that's what I got on it. I mean. However, you can get to it, the best access to it. I tell you, kind of a cool story. Like, I, I really don't, you know, know what to make of this, um, but because it kind of defies some of what we just talked about with the fawns and stuff. But um, two years ago, the, the property that you had just asked me about, um, the second year I had it, the water went down from the spring flood, kind of midsummer. And we went probably um, maybe it hadn't been, it probably wasn't a whole week. It was probably in the three to five day range from when the river forecast showed it was, you know, where we expected the water to be off a part of our property. It wasn't totally flooded, but the backside of it was flooded. And we went to kind of just see how, you know, what it looked like, uh, you know, what the flood had done in terms of roads that were blocked and access to different stuff and we actually got to where the water had been in the woods and um kind of got to a spot where the ground hadn't dried enough for us to drive any further on, on a side by side without sinking gumbo mud you know so we're actually walking through what was flooded i say i'm gonna say i'm gonna use the word flooded timber but really more like buttonwood you know, buck brush, buttonwood type yeah. thicket timber, um, a couple hundred yards off of a, a slough. And we're walking through there, just kind of checking the water line, seeing, and, and, and again, this is mud in knee boots sinking up to our calves. And we're walking, and I walk up on a fawn that's laying in a treetop, a treetop that was not really a treetop, actually just a pile of driftwood that had you know, gathered up around the base of a big tree. And this fawn couldn't have been more than, I don't know, two or three days old at the most. And it was curled up in the middle of that, that, that treetop timber next to the base of a big tree. And that water hadn't been gone much more many days than that deer was old. And that doe placed her right there. There wasn't a green stitch in eyesight for a hundred yards hmm. you know so that goes to show you that doe now granted now in this situation <laughs> that doe could have turned around and walked 200 yards behind her and been in timber that didn't flood where there was lots of green browse and everything but she was in there with that fawn in you know calf deep mud no browse and had her her baby laying in a treetop interesting so i you know i it's I mean, it, it, it you know, it, like I said, there was that was a deal where you had your typical spring summer flooding, and it flooded it it flooded enough to get up onto our property and flood the low area around the slough and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't a, a, a mass total flood. There was still plenty of woods in the bottom, and the deer hadn't evacuated or anything like that. But still, the idea that 200 yards behind us, maybe 300 yards behind us, there's thick green summer vegetation um 
and she's got her farm laying in a treetop in the middle of that floodplain. So I don't know. I walk. I mean, we walked right up to it. We obviously didn't disturb it. We never. We could see the fresh tracks from the doe where she had walked off. But you know, we walked right up to it, a few steps from it, took a picture with our phone. It never moved. You know. Interesting. That's wild, man. Right, mm-hmm. right with the flood water receding. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so you're not you're not in that property that flooded last year anymore, are you? No, I let I let that one go because I just it, it, as anybody that leases property knows, river property is expensive. It goes for a lot of money, and that place is was really low, and and uh, just just too much money it didn't make financial sense for me, but. Yeah, I got in another place in Mississippi that's on the river, so I'm not getting too far away from the river bottom hunting. Yeah, but uh, but not that property. So that's so that's not the same place that you shot your buck in November last year. No, the deer I shot in November last year was here in East Feliciana Parish. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, um, so Ronnie, I, I'm I'm intrigued to hear more about uh, the fact that you've never been in a deer lease. Uh, tell me, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, this being the fact that I live next to the WMA, I just kind of stuck to it and just, I mean, it's just too easy just to jump in the boat. And my, actually, the launch is literally a quarter mile from the house, so I can just jump in the boat and take off and hunt. Yeah. And, I mean, that's kind of just from what I've learned to do is just to hunt deer on this public land and, you know, try to find where the deer are, go to them, find what they're eating. And I just kind of stuck to it. And then I just kind of, I met friends on the other side of the state and, traveled over there and started hunting and found out it's a lot better hunting over there <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah long drive for hunting. you too yeah it's it's i mean it's not too far but it's worth it and i've, I've hunted i've hunted every one of the number maze reserves on the mississippi going all the way up to louisiana through louisiana and i mean it's unbelievable up there i love it over there and that's pretty much where i try to stay especially during the ruts I'll stay home during our ruts because our ruts are a lot earlier. I think our ruts is like the third week in October. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just now about to start kick on, kicking off here. But definitely when it's rutting in late December and January, I'm, I'm definitely going to be over there on the east side of the state Yeah, stay over there. Well, I've, um, I've got kind of an interesting experience that I had since, since last week's podcast. Um, I have a good friend of mine, um, a, a recent good friend of mine that, um, he is, I think we all, we all know this person. Um, he's the guy that always invites you to do something and you could have 99 days in a row free and he would invite you to do something on the hundredth day where you're booked, just booked up. Hmm. And, um, he's invited me countless times to do things, even from come and have a beer at the house, come eat dinner, go to dinner on Wednesday night with his family, um, come see his deer camp. I mean, he, he's, I, I told him when I finally made it, I said, man, I don't take this the wrong way. I didn't have time to come tonight, but I was afraid if I didn't, you would never call me again. <laughs> you know, I, I just didn't. I was afraid to say no again. Every time he said no, every time I had to say no to him to do something, I'm thinking to myself like, man, I could have done yesterday. I can do tomorrow, but I cannot do today, you know, and um, I'm a pretty available person and he just kept catching those exact times that I wasn't. Well, he invited me to his hunting property um, where he's had a camp since 1988. And um, he said, hey, come on over. You know, I cook a steak. We'll have some beers, hang out, come see the property, whatever. So I get there, <clears throat> and um, it is a compound. 
It is a um, literal semicircle, fifth of uh, fifth wheel trailers and and um, uh, old kind of rundown single wide trailers that have all been converted into deer camps. And I'm not naming any names. I'm not going to say where I was, but I think this kind of resonates with a lot of deer camps today. And um, I said, well, you know, tell me about this place because there was a house and then like the fifth wheels kind of surrounded the house. You could tell it was a commune, like a compound. I, I bet it gets rowdy on Friday and Saturday nights. And um, there's been, I'm sure, many a hunts that have been missed the next morning from hangovers. And um, I said, you know, tell me about your property. Tell me where you're hunting, blah, blah, blah. And this guy doesn't bow hunt at all. He only rifle hunts. But I've got to say, after after I've gotten to know, any, know him and after I've kind of talked to him about his um, theories of land management and whatever, he shares a lot of the same viewpoints on um, property access, not pressuring your deer, um, you know, taking inventory of your herd, things like that. He, he practices a lot of that. He just likes to shoot them out of a box stand. He, he told me it all kind of stemmed back to he had a 190-inch deer at 12 yards once, and he shot it, and he lost it. He never found it, and he hasn't picked a bow up since, and that was in, like, 1991. And so, anyway, we're talking there around the camp, and um, and I said, well, who, who owns that one? Who owns this one? And he said, look, this is all pretty much my family, um, close and distant and married in and uh, removed. You know, some of them have been divorced and still have a camp out here. But he goes um, – I can't hunt with these people. And he, and he said it just like that. He goes, I can't hunt with these people. I said, what do you mean? I thought y'all are all on the property together. He goes, no, they have, they have 1500 acres between the 10 of them or so. But I, um, in 1996, I bought 387 acres right in the middle of their lease and I own it. And, uh, he goes, but I can't hunt with it. I said, what, you know, what do you mean by that? What do you, what do you mean? Because like, it's kind of an ugly thing to say if you don't explain it. And he said, they, they're hunting a premium part of the state with 150s, 160s, 170s roaming around. This, this part of the state is known for big deer. And they are brown and stowners. And... I've been pulling, I've pulled two 200 inch deer off my property. I've pulled five 180s. I've pulled seven 170s. You know, he just went down the list. And he said, There is no deer I can drag out of those woods that will convince them to hold off on not shooting the first thing that they see. And um, it's, you know, it kind of, uh, we live in a world these days where we are outspoken about how much we disagree with people right or if you if you disagree if if you think differently then I think you're an idiot and um you know I I had to really pull it out of him you know hey tell me why you can't hunt with him what does that mean what do you mean by that because he wanted he just wanted to leave it at that he didn't want to say anything bad and um and so I I got to thinking about it and I was like you know what I think that is you know, part of the reason why I I couldn't do a deer camp is number one the the, the politics of it. Um, that's that's a that's probably that is the number one reason why I can't do it is the politics. But number two is I really don't care what other people shoot. It really has no effect on me. Um, but um, 
like we said on the the kickoff episode to this season, shoot whatever you want, but own it. Don't be a deer apologist. You know, if you wanted to shoot a, a, a little four point, you know, mount him on the front of your four wheeler and own it. But at the same time, I think his point wasn't so much that um, he was disappointed in what they were doing. He was disappointed in the fact that they weren't even taking advantage of the premium deer herd that was in that area. And they, they, they weren't even, it wasn't even a consideration. They could have been hunting area four. They could have been hunting, you know, the, the, the Biloxi marsh for God's sake and shooting 90 pound deer. But, um, but the, the opportunity to shoot trophy class deer without a whole lot of effort and just a little bit of consideration was just lost on them. And so, um, you know, when, when it comes to deer clubs, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm not in one and I'm not ever interested in joining one unless I own it. And I have people that I, I know and invite to be in it with me is like, I want to hunt with like-minded people. And that isn't because I, you know, don't respect what other people do. It's, you know, if it's like, uh, you know those radio shows where like there's a countdown clock and if you tell them to stop it you get a like like he says like fifty dollars or ninety seven dollars three hundred twenty it goes to a thousand and the whole time you're like you want them to get close to a thousand and they shut it off at fifty dollars they're like fifty dollars and they call it it's like man there was nine hundred and fifty more dollars there if you were just a little more patient you know so so just to play devil's advocate and I know there's more nuance to this than I'm gonna I'm gonna be over over literal so to speak but are are you not burdened with some of that same thought when it comes to public land because you don't have you know you 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 have zero say i don't want to say control control is not the right word but that's what keeps popping in my mind but you have zero um input or anything in the people that you're hunting with now granted on the large majority of public pieces that you hunt, you're hunting a lot more land than if you were mm-hmm. beholden to, you know, a, a defined area that you're in a club or lease that, you know, they have a defined area. But still, if you're hunting a, um, a section of public land that has a normal average of, let's say, 10 people accessing it in different ways, you don't even have the, the you don't even have the um the benefit of even knowing when they're coming and going much less what they're going to shoot and how they're hunting are they respectful are they not are they brown it's down are they bow hunters you know uh to the core are you and they're trying to bow hunt late season and they're gun hunt i mean you don't have any of that that you get in a controlled environment so i guess the question being just real open-ended is do you not consider some of those same things about the public access? Yeah. So first of all, you know how much I love hypotheticals and, Mm -hmm. and thought experiments and all that type of stuff. So, uh, while you were talking the first, I was considering everything you're saying. And I think the reason why I I don't want to say I'm okay with it or why maybe I accept it better is because number one, I'm not confined to uh, small quarters with them in the woods. Like you said, you got more property, you can get away. But number two, there's absolutely the fact that ignorance is bliss. I don't know what they're doing. So if I never see it, 
then I can't be, I don't want to say upset about it because I'm really not, but I'm not, yeah, you know, I want, I want people to realize the potential of an area. And like, like I said before, you know, if I'm hunting over where Ronnie lives and somebody walks out with a six point, that might be the biggest deer that comes off that plot of land. But you walk in a tinsaw and you shoot a, I mean, shoot a spike during the, you know, during the rut or, you know, during the first two weeks of January, I mean, Ronnie knows firsthand what could have been behind it, you know? And, um, you know, I don't know. I'm really trying hard not to, not to, and I'm not, I don't think I'm doing a very good job of actually not caring what people kill. I want people to kill bigger deer and realize that that bigger deer is going to be behind the smaller deer. Um, and they're going to enjoy their bigger deer more if they could just hold out another three to five minutes, sometimes 15 minutes or right before dark. Um, but like Ronnie says, he makes it all the way across the state to have better hunting property to, you know, he goes out of his way. Now, Ronnie, you work, um, where do you work again? I work in like Charles at a plant. You you work in a plant. You work at a plant. So you know when your days off are going to be. Um, right. you say you get a week off every month and are, I mean, hypothetically, are you going to go to Northeast Louisiana and shoot a yearling? <laughs> no, not at all. You know, that that's not why you make that drive. And so if you, so that's Ronnie, he lives three or four hours from there, but you take somebody that lives in Tinsaw Parish that knows what the opportunity of the deer herd is in that area. And if just a little more patience and or a little more skilled hunting and you can walk out of there with a 140 160 class buck you know and so that was the frustration that my buddy had what was it wasn't so much that they killed literally everything that moved it was more of where they were doing it it was a waste of that property if that makes sense in his opinion yeah. um I, yeah i i was say i found that I think the common uh, thought process or, I guess, derived opinions of, of people when we have this conversation, as specifically as it pertains to public land, is whether it be totally accurate or applicable in every situation. I think that too many people feel like the majority of your public land hunters – now, we're obviously not talking about somebody like Ronnie that – treks across the state to hunt a specific place and he's there because he can hunt a bigger deer in that area than he can at home but generally speaking those people that live local that can hunt there all the time it feels to a lot of people and maybe maybe it's a learned experience from a lot of people that too many people on public land don't they don't have any ownership so they're more likely to be far less steward mm-hmm. when it comes to that because a there it's much more prevalent in their world given that scenario that if i don't somebody else will right that becomes way more prevalent if you're on a lease and the rules are you can't shoot that deer well i don't have to think about it because I, nobody else is going to shoot it or they shouldn't shoot it anyway yeah um or if i'm on a lease with a couple of guys and we we all trust each other we're like-minded we know nobody's going to shoot that deer i don't have to you know, I don't have to decide for myself, should I shoot, which, you know, that's a whole another can of worms. I, I hate that mindset, regardless of where you're at, because it, it shouldn't matter to you whether somebody else is going to shoot it. But anyway, I, I don't want to d- digress into sure. that. But um, 
I, I think that that that's something you know. And I, again, I'm playing the hypothetical game because you know we are the uh, we are the uh, the opposites of each other in in that regard. And and your hunting tactic being public land and mine being private. But I think a lot of people do feel, I know I, you know, I grew up in Mississippi and I've not spent a lot of time hunting public land in Louisiana, only a little bit, but growing up, I hunted on a large lease that my grandfathers were a part of starting, you know, way back when my dad hunted when he was a kid and and all the way up through it, but it was, it was, it bordered the Homestead National Forest and it also bordered Sandy Creek management area both very popular large pieces of public land that are hunted very very hard and um you know the the idea that um the ignorance is bliss thing didn't work real well there because it got put in your face every weekend the free-for-all that was going on on the public side of things and so you know uh, I, I, but going back to my point, I think that it's, you know, I, I think that in this day and age, deer management and selective and selective hunting is, is more of a, 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 a accepted practice. It's, it's more of a thing that people have learned to do and, and find enjoyment in and they, and they do more of it. But generally speaking, I think there are too many people that, that, uh, like I said, they, they don't have anything holding them when they're on a public place piece they don't have any ownership you know so i don't know i just i wonder about that when i hear when i hear you talk about the things you're talking about i wonder about that it's like you know why why i'm okay with one and not the other well not really why are you okay but you know just how how like you said and you and you you answered it in in definition um you know mostly what you said kind of from my first point plays into my second point but um you have those feelings about private, but from my side of the conversation, I can see the exact same issues, only you have far less to go off of. You're just completely relying on the ignorance is bliss thing mm-hmm. because all of those issues, with the exception of the defined boundaries, more defined, more not, not defined because the boundaries are still defined, but you know what I'm saying, the proximity boundaries. Yeah. Um, other than that, you're dealing with the same thing. The difference being, if I'm in a lease, I at least know that, hey, this guy keeps going and hunting the wrong places on the wrong wind. I know to stay away from everywhere he's hunting because he's blowing everything up, you know, the, the, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have no data to go off of. You're just hoping that all of your hard work's going to pay off and nobody's messed you up and nobody's in there shooting a spike and dragging it out two days ago and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think about that all the time. Um, you know, what if I found this today, who was hunting here yesterday, you know, um, who, who shot something and dragged it out? Like you said yesterday. Yeah. Parker, you know, know, Parker McDonald, who we talked to, um, he's a public land guy. You know, he's the, 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 for people that don't remember, he's the guy from last year that we talked about. He hunts out of a kayak and he finds all of his public access. He finds places he can put his kayak in and try to get, um, I don't know if he said this on our podcast. I had him on my podcast, my spring turkey podcast, and I think he actually said it on, on this, but he, he said something to the effect that he goes through all this effort to use the kayak and get to places where people can't get, and he said it's literally like a sick pit in his stomach when he gets somewhere and finds fresh human sign. Oh, yeah. 
It's the word. That's when Ronnie was talking about paddling across something earlier in the, in the episode. I, I I thought about all the the nice little ponds I've paddled across, or the little hundred yard wide bayou or lake I've paddled across, and you know we always think about hey, what's over there. You know, man, I bet nobody hunts over there. And then you get there, and there's a four-wheeler trail that just parallels it. <laughs> God damn it, man. Um, and that's so that's why I said, you know, you get up those nasty creeks, you get up those nasty bayous where, you know, maybe you have to even leave the Piro and start walking, you know, um, because, you know, when – shoot, back, back when – um, and it's even worse today, but I remember when they were really start coming out big time back in 2010, 11, 12, when, um, you know, surface drives were, you know, gator tails and pro drives and mud buddies were, I mean, everybody was racing to the farthest corners of the swamp and there was, there was no unknown duck hole anymore. Everything was discovered. Everything had a mud trail running to it. Um, and, uh, and and so then you start have to look for places where like even a mud boat couldn't go, you know. Um, and it's the same thing with deer hunting is, you know, you get on a map. Like let, let's take Sherburn for example. I don't you know like to talk about public pieces of land, but for this example, it's not bad. Sherburn is only accessible like twenty five percent of Sherburn is accessible by four wheeler trail. The other 75% of it is only accessible by boat. There's parts of Sherburn that of deer that have never seen a human before. And it might be a literal 45-minute boat ride to get back there. And you might damn near rip the transom off your boat to do it. But you know sure as well that the second you launch your boat, you're going to be the only one for a quarter mile in every direction. Um, and I guess at that point in time, it's well, how, how, how much time do you have? You know, how, how much can you dedicate to this hunt? Um, but, you know, when it comes to access, the nastier the better, man. You know? Hey guys, it's the Louisiana Bowhunter Shop of the Week brought to you by Tacticam. Today we're on the phone with Ronnie with American Hunter out of Covington, Louisiana. Ronnie, thanks for joining us today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So tell us tell us where you're located. We're at 2009 Ronald Reagan Highway in Covington, Louisiana. And and how long have y'all been in business? The business has been there for 36 years, and I have been the proud owner for a year and a half now. Congrats. I know that's a big move for you. It is. Thanks for that. So I know it's going well. Y'all have made a lot of improvements to the shop. Um, tell some, tell us uh, what y'all have done to the inside for people that haven't been there recently. Well, we have a full indoor 20-yard range. It's enough to shoot two people, you know, to, for two people to shoot down it. Um, but it is there. It is air-conditioned. We've uh, changed the entire bow area um, when we work on bows. Just made all kind of changes. Have more in stock than we've ever had. So it's worth coming to look at. Excellent. So what brands do you carry? As far as bows go, we're doing um, Matthews, Bowtech, Elite, PSE, and Bear. Nice. You got a full lineup, man. That's great. Did yeah, y'all add any recently? Did, y- <laughs> did y'all add any recently? We, um, we've added Elite this year, and we've added Bear this year. Nice. 
That's great, man. Well, I know y'all are doing big things. The inside looks fantastic. Um, you know, anybody that hasn't been there in a while really needs to stop in and see y'all because it used to be archery was kind of in the back. Uh, it was, you know, the tuning area was in the in the back of it, and you had to walk through the back of the store to get anything knocked out. Um, but now y'all have moved everything kind of front and center to where the front counter greets you you've got done some really nice renovations on the inside upgraded a lot of inventory and um it looks impressive man i'm happy for you i appreciate that well um anything else you want to add before we jump off of here um man y'all just come by and check us out if you hadn't been in there um come introduce yourself we'd be glad to meet you and help you with any of your needs great well hey thanks for joining us man good talking to you you too thanks bud all right, we're going to do the Louisiana Bow League weekly update. Uh, week two is complete, and uh, we're going to do the top ten each week, even though there's 30 teams. So in first place is Bloodline, 165 and 5 eighths points. Train Killers bumped down to second, 152 and 5 eighths points. Third place, Heart Stoppers with 90. Fourth place, Button Bobby with 60. Fifth place, Dropping Strings, 40 points. Sixth place, Stacking Racks with 40 points. Seventh place, Swack Attack, 30 points. Eighth place, Bayou Boys, 25. Ninth place, Rageaholics with 25. And tenth place, Stay Stealthy with 25 points. Uh, the way the scoring works is you get one point for every inch score of your buck. 20 points for a doe, 10 points for a hog, 25 points for a bobcat, 5 points for a coyote. Um, and uh, add it all together, multiplied by each member of the team, and you get your running score. So whoever is uh, highest at the end of this year will win, but uh, we're going to keep doing these updates for you weekly. Thanks. I'm going to try to uh, I'm gonna try to bring us back to topic a little bit. Because sure. you, you're talking about, out of, this crossed my mind when you're talking about the different places you've been and stuff like that. Ronnie, in your experience, um, kind of playing on the same topic, but getting back to the flood, when we're having these high water um, days during hunting season, how, how has that changed your public land hunting? I mean, do you, obviously, if it concentrates deer and animals, it's got to concentrate people. Um, does that make it more difficult? Does more people stop showing up? you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like what, what does that look like for you as a public land guy? Yeah. Around the house, um, when it's comes up real bad, then most of probably 75% of the actual property is underwater. So yeah, it kind of pushed everybody in you know, certain little areas, but you can also get in the Piro and try to go through little flares and get to places where, you know, it's not easily accessible by a boat, but Actually, last year it got to where the whole entire piece of property was underwater, so we couldn't hunt it for most of the year. But when I went over there to the northeast Louisiana last year, and like you said, it, it flooded like in late November, and then flooded all through January is when it got real high. Well, I was there in January, and um, that's what we had to do. I, I didn't even take a fuller off the trailer. I just stayed in the P-Row the whole time, just kind of bouncing around, just getting everywhere I can with the P-Row. Did you see more and, hunt, more or less hunters, or what was that? You know, I see more hunters, the... more hunters with piros <laughs> than I've ever seen yeah. up there. It seems like kind of everybody's kind of just adapting to it, the little piro system. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, a lot of times like, the four-wheeler trails are all flooded, so you can't really go on the four-wheeler trails, and everybody kind of notices other people riding around with boats and trailers, so they kind of think, okay, well, maybe that's a good idea. So let's, let's go get us a little piro and go try it, and they kind of 
get to do the same thing. But as you was talking a minute ago about how getting far, you know, trying to get as far, far as you can, I had a little story last year. We actually launched our P-Row, and we got, you know, trying to get as far as we could possibly go. I think we went a little over a mile in the P-Row and walked another half a mile back in there and um, actually ran into the edge of the public land. And then a big old giant four-wheeler trail, box blind, deer feeder, and all that on private property. So, you know, like, man, we did all this work. We went all this far and bang, you know, run into all these people or pressure from the private property. Yep. So it's not always getting as far as you can possibly get is always a good thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to get away from pressure from people because people are now starting to try to do the same thing. People are trying to get as far as they possibly can away from the road. So you're actually starting to see more people traffic, you know, the further you go because everybody's trying to do the same thing, trying to get away from people. So, yeah, we've, yeah. we've mentioned that in the past, which is, you know, you got a $60,000 truck, you got an $18,000 side by side, you got uh, you know, $2,000 bow. You want to use your equipment to the maximum potential that it has. And so people always assume that the farther back, the better. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know a couple of people that, <laughs> they don't even go a hundred yards from the parking lot. Um, and, uh, and they kill more deer or bigger deer or both. Um, than than the guys that go six miles back, you know? Um, but it's, I don't know. It's all, everything's, everything's a game. Every, you know, bow hunting's mm-hmm. just a game of chess, you know, how you move your pieces and, and where you're decided to, to move to is all that matters. So, yeah. But, um, and I've, I've killed one of my biggest public land deer, right off the parking lot i mean there's a fuller trail and i went maybe 300 yards from fuller trail went in there and sat in a tree and i can just hear fuller just going by me the whole time going way to the back of the property just keep going all day and i killed big old big deer actually waited for everybody to leave that evening all the fullers before i drug him I actually drug him out on the trail to pull him out Jeez. but i mean i was right there i, I can where i pulled him out i can see everybody's you know where yeah. whole parking lot just sitting right there I can I can give you a, a testament to that to that whole thing. Um, I, I don't hunt this property anymore, but from from the first year out of college until about um, five years ago, four years ago, I hunted a uh, a piece of property in Mississippi that bordered our entire eastern border was a very popular national wildlife refuge along the river in the state of mississippi a very popular one for duck hunting and deer hunting and um on on, one of the um the one of the parking lots for one of the big units of that of that uh refuge was about it may have been a hundred yards through the woods from our property line and you know most of the people that came and went they would park there and go up there was a road that ran parallel a parallel with our line all the way up and it even went on further past where we cornered um most people would park there and go you know miles up and little did they know we had stands we had several different setups for different situations within two or 300 yards of that parking spot because it was kind of a thicket between our line and their parking lot. And then it was all thick CRP stuff around the parking lot. 
and some of the you know we had three miles of line from that parking lot up that road it went three miles so i'm not talking about a short piece i'm talking about a big area right and that ridge that high ridge with that thick stuff on it that ran off of our property right up to the to the parking lot was on the high ridge that was one of the best big buck corridors in that whole three mile strip <laughs> right there and huh? we would we would i mean we killed every year there were really nice bucks and on several occasions tremendous deer of a lifetime bucks killed within 100 yards of where those people were parking and going two miles up the line and going off into the refuge you know off of our line there um and you know people never even knew it we would we would go in there and hunt you know and we'd be we would hear people get out and park talking getting in their truck getting on their four-wheeler and going and then daylight would come and deer would start filtering through and they were laid up right but they were laid up in the thicket between us and their truck with a 100 yard stretch right Jeez. there yep uh, so i've got a question for you this is to- totally unrelated to anything like we've been talking about but kind of related to that proximity thing right there what do you think what do you think is more disruptive to a deer in the dark, you're walking in in the morning, set up a stand in the morning. Okay, you're walking through the woods. What do you think is more disruptive? Walking loudly, like, you know, stepping on sticks and twigs and stuff with no light, or walking quietly with a light? With a light. Uh, yeah, with a light, for sure. I think That's what that, I said, too. I, well, I, I, think that, I think that walking loudly... And then, and then that, and when we stay walking loudly, I mean, I'm use, using that based off of natural sounds. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about if you're dragging something. You're trying. You're trying things. to walk quietly, unsuccessfully. Yeah, if you're just walking through the, I mean, if you sit still in the woods, you hear squirrels, and if you're hunting almost anywhere nowadays, but specifically in the river bottom, hogs. Before daylight, you know, every river bottom property I've ever hunted in my lifetime has had hogs and they're all basically nocturnal and there were very few mornings that i walked into the woods to this day and didn't hear hogs Mm -hmm. rummaging through the woods right before daylight that's when they're most active they're always out and about so i just kind of feel like if i can slip into the woods and i don't get too close to a deer and he hears me walking through the woods he may pay attention to the sound just because he knows that something moving in the woods. But if he didn't smell me or see me, it could be anything. Yep. Yep. You know, but a light, a light is very unnatural. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like on the, I don't use a light very much myself. I actually pride myself. I, I kind of joke about having, you know, a superpower being able to see in the dark. <laughs> and as I get older, my superpowers are fading by the way, but mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't use a light now. I'm not necessarily of the thought that a light is like this super bad influencer on deer. Like, I don't think that, I think a light is a curious thing to a deer that I'd rather than not be curious about. I don't think it's one of those immediate flight, uh, cues or anything like that. You know, but with that being said, I I think that it is definitely something that's going to put them on high alert and probably, if it's a mature deer, he may lay there while you pass by, but he's going to leave or yeah. he's at least not going to come in your direction. Um, well, if you, so if you think about the proximity of 
like you could say the disturbance proximity of both of those things separately. Um, I've been, I've been on a lot of, uh, blood trails where it was me and one or two other people after dark at night looking for a deer and we lose sign of blood. And then we start doing the semicircle thing where we're spreading out and trying to cut. We're just looking for a deer rather than deer than blood. When that person gets 10 yards away from you, he gets quieter. When he gets 20 yards away from you, he gets quieter. When he gets 50 yards away from you, you can't hear him. Now, granted, deer's hearing's better, of course. That's what's going through your head right now. But at the same time, at all of those distances, the light is equally as bright and unnatural at all of those distances. Then you get to 75 yeah. yards and 100 yards, and eventually you, know, you get to a point where um, – you don't hear the guy at all. All you can see is his light. And um, so I, I don't know. I, I wanted to ask you all about that because I put you know, I put up a question last year about it. You know, what do you think is more disturbing, a light or, or walking, just walking loudly, you say? Um, and uh, and everybody said walking loudly was worse. And I couldn't 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 disagree more. Um, I, I don't think walking loudly is a problem at all unless unless what hears you is downwind of you. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that a good point. Per, per, I, I personally don't think. I, I, so let's just say if there's a deer feeding under a oak tree, let's use that example. We we'll use two that or a deer that's bedded, um, in a in not not in a a permanent bed, but a deer that's been feeding all night and just laying up somewhere before they get up and move to their permanent bed for the day. And that deer's a hundred yards from where you're walking, and he's not downwind. He's he's on the on the right wind upwind of you i think that there's no doubt about it if he hears you he's gonna stop you know look your way scent check and try to figure out what it is um stop feeding you know turn his head from where he's laying and and he's gonna pay attention but if he doesn't smell you and he can't see you i don't think that i i, I think once the disturbance is gone and you've gone undetected otherwise I personally don't think that it makes any difference whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Now, we can debate how much the light affects them. I don't know, but at, to your point, there's no doubt about it. If you're 100 yards from it, at some point, the light's going to shine through whatever. Mm -hmm. It may not, it may be brighter in some cases. It may be in the wide open woods in other cases. It, you know, it may only get glimpses of it. He's going to see the light. And then you're at that point, you're up to the unknown that we're talking about here. The unknown, you're left to the unknown. How much, how much does that bother him? Because now he knows what he's hearing is that. And, you know, what he makes of that is my, you know, I don't want to leave that to chance. I mean, other people can, but I just personally think if you approach, if you approach your hunting location as, as strategically as you can, you know, obviously there there could be a deer downwind. You don't expect to be in that direction or whatever. But but nevertheless, if you if you're approaching a a stand near a bedding area or, or something and and you approach it the right way, I, I don't think the noise makes any difference at all. Yeah, Ronnie, you agree? Yeah, and I mean, I can't tell how many deer that I walk by with you know with a light and them not even move. They just either lay there or just stand there and look at you while you walk by. Now if they you know, probably don't come back to that area and I'll probably slip away. But I think I've had more deer maybe run away, you know, during the daylight 
when you walk by them than versus with a light. Because the light, they just kind of sit there and just stare at you. They yeah. don't move at all. Well, most of them I think they're generally more calm in the dark. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, it's kind of hard going through the woods without a light, obviously. You can't see. Yeah. <laughs> but but most of the ones that I've seen, they just kind of stare at you and just, as you walk by, just I mean, don't stop and just keep, you know, just staring at them, you know, because then you know, you're eventually going to spook them off. But just you see them and just keep on going because I don't think it affects them that much. Yeah. Obviously, you know, they see the light and they know it's not normal, but they're not as spooked as would be going during daylight and they can actually see. Yeah. So. I was just, I was curious. That was something that crossed my mind. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that that came out of left field. Um, but, uh, you know, you were talking, the reason that, uh, that prompted me to think of it was you're talking about the, the parking lot. And let's think about how busy a public land parking lot is at four o'clock in the morning. It's nothing but truck headlights. It's nothing but trailers with gates slamming down. It's nothing but four wheelers backing off and sitting there while, while they're loaded up. And so, um, if you're a deer and you know that that square of, of the earth is, you know, the most dangerous place on the planet and you're outside of that square and you can see the lights through the woods, but nothing's actually coming towards you. Things are going farther away from you. It would make sense why that would be a bit of a refuge, you know, um, and, yeah. and, 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 and overlooked area. So, um, so I let, think it, I think that becomes learned behavior too. I mean, I, 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 I think it's a combination of, that parking lot was created and, and and is being used yearly in a spot that is very advantageous for the deer anyway. Yeah. And over the years, they've learned that nobody ventures out of that parking lot and bothers us. So when they pull up here, we're just going to stay here and just wait on them to leave. Yeah. Just the same thing as the, the neighborhood deer that know, hey, you know, Larry just pulled up. He's going to go in his garage. I'll just stand here and watch him, make sure he doesn't come in the backyard and go back to feeding. Well, um, let's let's uh, let's kind of wrap it up here on the the flooding topic. Locke, you made a great point talking about the the timeliness of a flood, and how you know this year, even though areas were underwater for longer, that's technically better because the flood didn't sneak up on a doe after it had conceived, um, and it was bred on high ground, so it was bred post flood not pre-flood, trying to give birth post-flood and, and possibly having higher abortion rates. Um, but um, so one thing that I guess we didn't really touch on too much was um, what what can what can people, and I guess we did talk about this, we talked about what people can expect. We know the deer will come back, um, but when it was flooded as long as it is, is there any chance for browse to come back before um, the wintertime frost comes in and was going to kill everything anyway? Or they're only, only going to be feeding on hard mass trees. I think I think there's going to be. Um, so I, first of all, I'll answer it with a, a fact. I, you know, some of the people I've talked to, and what I've seen on the property that I have uh, up in Mississippi, which is not very far north, but in southern Mississippi, the browse is coming back. And I don't know. You know, we had a warm start to October, so. We had a very warm September as well. I don't know if Mother Nature's taking care of itself in that way. But, um, you know, um, I think a lot of the areas are going to get more. That swamp greens up way faster than you think it would. And I've also heard from people up and down the river that the deer numbers look really good. So just in terms of population, 
So the, the swamps are repopulating. I, I think everybody has to answer your question. I think um, my answer to that, and maybe Ronnie could say different about some of the public places that he knows, but for me, I, th I think it's very much location-specific because some people, um, just the lay of their land, um, how quickly the flood went down and what kind of trees and stuff they have. I think everything's going to be different. I don't think it's going to be very uniform. I think one place may be relying on hard mess. One place may be getting a lot more browse. Uh, for private property people, you need to work really hard on your fertilizer um, because the late season, your food plots, you need to plant. You need to, if you don't do this, you need to go ahead and plan to throw ammonium nitrate and thanksgiving first of december and boost those plots back up because the deer are really everywhere across the board the deer in the swamp are really going to need them come mm -hmm. you know uh christmas on well uh well that's got a lot of good information here guys this is something that i'm just not very well versed on is uh the flooding in, in the state i'm never really hunted places that were affected that heavily by it um ronnie do you have yeah. anything that you want to add before we uh we jump off of here no, I, mean, I, think, I think we covered a lot of good information. Absolutely. Well, congrats on uh, congrats on your doe this weekend, man. I uh, I'm, I'm feels good. I know it feels good to get that monkey off your back, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, it sure does. Well, um, well, look, let's end it out. Let's in, let's end it here, and uh, you know, we'll have this one out for tomorrow. But uh, I appreciate you being on, Ronnie, and uh, y'all be safe. Y'all be good. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thanks, buddy. See you, Locke. All right. All right. See you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.